Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. I met with Marianne Cause at the annual bioconference in New York City on May 20th to talk about her biography, Mina Loy, Apology of Genius, published by the University of Chicago Press in July 2022. Marianne Cause, welcome to Bio. Thank you. I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. Who is Mina Loy? Mina Loy was this amazing everything. She was a futurist. And then my book about her is mostly about her poems, which I loved. And she was a really interesting artist who knew lots of other artists all over the world. Fell in love with a lot of Marinetti and so forth and so on. And that then she finally met the great love of her life, Arthur Craven. So my book is really about them both. I was commissioned to do this book. And I was delighted to do it and was just overcome by liking her poetry and herself. Everything about her interested me. You speak about Arthur Craven. Who was he? He was this amazing person she called Colossus because she met him, fell in love with him, how not. But he was somebody who disrobed all the time. He would be giving a lecture and he would disrobe. I mean, completely. You mean just take his clothes off? Take all his clothes off. And then he was like 30 different people. He was everything as well as a boxer and then he was Oscar Wilde. Yeah he fought Jack Johnson. That's right. I mean big posters of Jack Johnson and Arthur Craven. Amazing and he was a writer of course. And And an artist in his own right. An artist Mm -hmm. and he wrote this amazing book Maintenant which I found once in Athens. I stumbled across it, fell in love with him and kind of never came back and he was totally amazing in every way. She adored him and they got married in Mexico, went around with no money, and then he died, nobody knows how. He set off in a little craft. The end is like hot cream. We don't know anything about it. I love that we don't know anything about it. Well, she at times was doubting if he was dead, but they wound up in Mexico because he was dodging the draft. Yes, why, why not? He dodged a lot of things, but then he caught a lot of things. And he caught her, and that was pretty amazing because, you know, Marinetti and others had not caught her. And she adored him the rest of her life, missed him the rest of her life, and everything is about this lost colossus he was. Right, and she had a daughter with him after he died. Yes. Or after he disappeared. After he (laughs) disappeared, right. And she had another daughter with her first love and the whole thing is interesting about her daughters then she went to aspen because of her daughters she kind of lost it and then she went to aspen and i went there to find her grave everywhere she was everybody noticed her because she was beautiful she was beautiful and fashionably dressed or not um, when she was with the bowery buns writing that amazing poem about the bowery buns and they, of course, were the very bums and the bun and the bun. She was great on words. And somehow then she wore a nightgown to be with them. And then she wore you know, fashionable skirts dragging along the sidewalks everywhere. So she was everything to a lot of people. How did her beauty affect her work in life? 
greatly because everybody, of course, fell in love with her. And then she could model, and then she made these hats. Her beauty was also to be beautiful and make other people understand what beauty was. So she made hats, and she made this and that. And the beauty was like in every single department that she traveled in and, you know, thought in and imagined in. I mean, she was one of those visionaries. And a social magnet. And a social magnet. Right. And everybody adored her. How not? I mean, she would walk in the room with her two daughters and everybody would go <clears throat> gasping over all three. And that was kind of wonderful. There were three of them everywhere. She had a baby that died very uh, early on in her first marriage, um, which was quite unhappy. Very un The first marriage, unhappy. And that child dying at you know, one or even less, she made a, a sculpture about that child and never forgot the child. And I think that was part of her. Her melancholy was, in a sense, part of her beauty. It was sort of transfiguring her, her vision. So her first marriage was very disappointing. She lost their baby. Then she finds the great love of her life and loses him. So her life is sort of overshadowed by these great losses, which she pours into her art. And you've decided to just focus on her poetry. Why is that? I thought she was an amazing poet, and other people who've written about her write about the art, which is interesting. The one, the Christ on a clothesline, incredible. But somehow, to me, her poetry, uh, which she sort of undervalued, she said, I'm not a poet, why are you writing about my poems to people? On the other hand, she was a very great poet, I think, and she was more great poet than a manifesto writer. She wrote a lot of manifestos and you know, all that. She wrote everything. However, from my point of view, the poems are really extraordinary, and I've been happy sort of dealing with them. A lot of her poems were visually stimulating. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, her first poems when she was with Marinetti, you know, being in a cafe and all that kind of thing. Oh, I like that. And then later she writes about butterflies and she was of course a social butterfly so the whole her word play and her visual play somehow play into each other and you know the whole Breton words are not playing they're making love that kind of thing in her the making love of the words and the people she was involved with like Duchon you know everybody she was involved with seemed to uh, be like Marcel Duchamp they're always cast in both visual and verbal senses, both her poems and her, her writing and her living, of course. I mean, she was among artists all her life. That's why we know her. Most of your writing has dealt with visual art. Can you talk on that for a moment? Yes, indeed. So my great passions are in all the three biographies I've just written uh, on Alice Raoult and Dormar, of course, and Miloy are all about people who are both Poets, they're all poets, and visual something or other, like Dormar, great photographer, uh, Alice Raoult, you know, extraordinary, and she was bisexual, like many of these people. And uh, then, of course, uh, Mina Loy, who was everything to everybody. Not bisexual like the rest, but interesting to me is the way that they were all with bigger men. I mean, the kind of thing we talk about in the biography someone knows this morning. They were all... You mean at the biography conference? At the yes. biography conference okay, right now. I mean, yeah. they're all 
you know, they're attached to bigger men. The men are better known. So either Picasso for Duramar and for Alice Raoul, who had to leave him and all that sort of thing, because her husband said, I'll commit suicide if you go off with him. So she went back and three years later, well, he committed suicide anyway, but not because of her. So the whole thing about being with a man seems to be, for all these people, important. Of course, Mina Loy loses her man, and that was the only man she really, really, really loved. Right. So what you're saying is many women's successes are tied to the men in their lives, but Mina Loy, her success is actually tied to the loss of men and sort of having to go it on her own. And, you know, coming back to her beauty for a moment, I think that transcended her Maybe loneliness isn't the right word, but it attracted people to her. Enormously, enormously. Yeah. All her life, even at the end when, of course, she was, she had no teeth and her hair was... She was still a beauty. She was still a beauty, <laughs> yeah. and I think a visionary kind of beauty. And the way she ends up with Joseph Cornell corresponding because of Christian science, all of that's part of it all. It's like all of her in these various modes and places and everything with people... She was still Mina Loy. That's what a very physical person. Me. Yes, right. physical. Her body was mm-hmm. there. Never yes. mind that it was sort of less than it used to be. You know, she sort of objectified herself in yes. some ways. Yeah, and she didn't find herself diminished at the end. And all her <clears throat> writing about an aged woman is still very wonderful writing, and she predicts it. She postdates a poem. Her whole vision of herself is in fact the thing that we envision her because of. Mm. She always knew she was Mina Loy. There was not any hesitation. I mean, she had other names, of course, when she was growing up, but that whole issue of being the self bodily and physically, even when you've lost part of your brain, she knew perfectly damn well who she was. So tell me about her childhood. Terrible. Absolutely terrible, because the mother was puritanical, wouldn't let her wander around, and her father was this great guy she was very fond of, and so then she went off, you know, went off to school and went off here and there. She kept going off and not To places like Germany, Paris, even though she was born where? She was in England. So she was always English, but then became other things, became American finally, but she she was always Mina Loy to herself. To what extent were you able to trace her footsteps in in the research for this book? Well, there was a wonderful book written about her by Carolyn Burke. So that was my first big help. And then my other big helps were getting to know the kinds of people she had known through reading, you know, here and there. I read all the books about her, of course. I mean, how can you not do that? So I read them all, and they all did different things. And the one that interests me the most was the Christian science part of her, because people only, there's one book about that, but the link between her and Joseph Cornell, on whom I spent a whole year at the Getty doing stuff on Joseph Cornell, whom I adored, the whole issue of Christian science was fundamental for her. She could talk about anything, but Christian science it would revert to at the end. And the correspondence she had with Cornell is very moving from that point of view, really moving, because she believed that she could write to him. He was the only person who really understood her, and he really did, I believe. And the whole issue of um, Christian science is very complicated, so I went into that, and because I was writing on Christian scientists, I had to go to Boston 
to say to the Mother Church, yes, I'm writing on me and Louie, and she was a Christian, so you have to do the whole thing. And I did, and I became a Christian scientist for a while and played the piano and all that, because I was in Paris, and the problem with Christian science, as you may know, it's terrible. You can't have a doctor. You have to have a practitioner. And the practitioner would practice with me over the telephone. And, you know, I was sick. I couldn't see. But there's no such thing as glasses. But the practitioner prays with you on the phone. Mary Baker Eddy was born in my hometown, Wilmington, North Carolina. And I can talk like that. But she uh, she was a Christian scientist. And that about me and Loy, people usually don't, or very often don't, take into account. Wait, so you became a Christian scientist for, yeah. for your research? Yes. I was in Paris, so I played the piano, and I played very badly, and I couldn't see because, you know, Christian scientists, you can't, you know. You can't have glasses. And I lived with a Christian science woman in Paris, and the Christian science practitioner said, I cannot walk into this house because this house is not full of Christian scientists. So I had to pray on the telephone with her. And I'm not a Christian scientist, but I thought it fascinating. I think all religions are fascinating. But she was a believer. So Mina Loy believed in everything. She believed in her art. She believed in the people she loved. And she believed, of course, in Arthur Craven, a Colossus, and who would not? To what extent were you able to interview any descendants of Mina Loy for this biography? No descendants, but Roger Conover, who believes in Loy, his house is Loy land, and he has a craven thing. And so I thought I was writing this book for him, but I wasn't. I was writing it for reaction, which is just fine. And I loved the whole thing about being imbued with the spirit of somebody. So he, Roger Conover, who used to be at MIT, where I used to be before I left, is sort of like the spirit of Mina Loy, and the spirit of somebody who loves the enthusiasm, you know, God in the... That's the way I believe that you have to believe in Mina Loy, because if you don't share her enthusiasm for things, you're not getting Mina Loy, who was enthusiastic, you know, God dwelling in vision everywhere. She was really a visionary. You insert yourself on the page in this biography and opine on her life. You talk about some of the decisions that she made in a very personal way. Why did you choose to insert yourself into this book? That's a great question. I think I do that in all my biographies. And um, the one on Alice Raoul, the one love with Picasso, I felt, you know, who would not be attracted by Picasso? I mean, come on. And so then also with Dora Maher, it seemed to me I went to her house and I saw all her religious things on the floor, and I saw she'd left her pocketbook open and what she'd eaten and the icebox. And so I was the first person to see and love, actually, everything about her. She was so impassioned, and I love the passion in everybody, and that's why I've chosen these people to write on, including me and Loy and including Dora Their passion somehow becomes my passion for them. You become the person you're writing on. So I would never choose to write on somebody I didn't like. I think I couldn't do that. And I promised years ago, René Char, who is the man I went to, the great poet, I went to France because of him and stayed in France because of him. And he said, please promise me never to write on anyone you don't love. And I promised him and I've kept that promise. Why is Mina Loy relevant today? Like, why should we care about Mina Loy? She did so many things so wonderfully. 
not just a fashion thing in the making of the hats and the making of the globes and the making of this and that as a maker, but also as a poet, and so poetry matters to me or not. And she was also, in almost every way, more colorful than anyone around her, and so people couldn't not see her. And when she was on in New York, in that wonderful place where they all gathered. So, you know, it was like everybody understood Mina Loy as Mina Loy, and they gravitated around her, no matter how she was garbed, you know, in Lower East Side with the Bowery Bums, which I think is a big, if you said to me, who, which is the greatest poem of hers, difficult, but I would certainly say the Bowery Bums. It's the, the ballad of those homeless people, and she has a, a wonderful painting of that, with various, it's a sort of construction with the various uh, Bowery bums lying down all around called communal cot, really superb. And that kind of way of showing that you could be part of the commonality and yet be yourself entirely. It was like she gave herself to them and took back their kind of enthusiasm. So she made little objects all her life and big objects. And the big objects are her paintings. There's nine chapters in the book with three intervals that take on futurism, Arthur Craven, and Mina Loy, the artist. Can you explain why you inserted these intervals? Yes, because I didn't, it's a great question. I couldn't, didn't want to, refuse to insert all these things I had to say about the art and about Craven, of course, in the chapters, it was just going to be too unwieldy. How do you stick something you're really impassioned about in the middle of the chapter? So I said to my editor, I'm sorry, but I have to have intervals. And so I have three, like a trinity, and you know, I'm remembering how Christian science and how everything is sort of trinitarian in the good sense. And so this, the chapters deal with various parts, and of course biography has to be somewhat somewhat consequentially, you know, by dates. But to me, that wasn't what mattered. What mattered was who she was in the interiors of those dates. And the only way I could insert all this other stuff was in intervals, which are, to me, very important. What was your writing process? Took a long time. I was so impassioned, I would, of course, write in the middle of the night and then didn't get rid of much. I'm not really good at discarding things. So it got big, and then it got less big because some parts were boring. You reread it and you think, oh, I've said that, oh, I'm not interested in this. So anything that was uninteresting to me, I just ditched. I was commissioned to do 40,000, words, so I did that. Why do you write about women? I'm one, and I can see from inside that as well as outside better than I could about a man. And though Joseph Cornell was important to me beyond belief, he was also enormously visionarily inside himself feminine. So I find that I can talk about what I know about. I can't talk about what I don't know about. And I don't know what it's like to be a man at all. I don't believe, Simone de Beauvoir, if you kiss your elbow, you become a man. I never wanted to do that. And I'm sort of submissive. So I'm submissive to the people I write on, and it's important to me to deal with what they have said about themselves, even if they keep changing. And then I can keep changing my writing 
as they kept changing, like me and Lloyd changing her personality. I mean, she changed immensely from being, you know, lover of Marinetti and Duchamp and all those people, and she becomes whoever she's writing about. So all of that, even when she's doing fiction, as she did about Gertrude Stein, it seems to me clearly her. And I love reading her stories. They're about her. Who else are they going to be about? So I'm not writing about me, but I'm writing about what it is to look as a woman looks. And I'm interested in the gaze, the female gaze. And she was, she was a great looker. I mean, in both senses. Mm -hmm. you know, she played with words, but she was a great looker. And she was a great seer. Hmm. Magical seer. Mina Loy's art needs to be seen. Yes. Um, to be believed in some Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Right? so peculiar. Right. So, so how did you curate which images to be in this book? The ones I could get hold of. And some I'm avoiding. Like, I don't really like the butterfly one. And I just chose to elaborate on the ones I cared about. Look at what she's looking at. Write about what she's writing poems about. So that particular view of Brancusi, Brancus, uh, was very important to me. And the Christ on a clothesline, you know, the sailor she saw, whose face she took for Christ, that's very beautiful because it's so creepy and so visionary as being creepy and yet understanding what crucifixes are like. Some art I found of hers, which I just love finding, is about a crucifix and a sort of blood dripping down the cross and nobody'd seen those, and this wonderful person in Paris showed me those. So, and she saw what others did not see, and then outside that, and then inside that. So that whole inside outside for me about Mina Loy is remarkably important. Double singular vision. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was my conversation with Marianne Cause regarding her book Mina Loy: Apology of Genius, published by the University of Chicago Press in July 2022. This interview was recorded at BIO's annual conference in New York on May 20th. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.